0: Let's continue that prayer that we just sang to the Lord. Would you bow with me? Father, we do ask for the ministry of your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would teach us, that you would strengthen our faith, Lord, that you would give us a sensitivity to sin, that you would bring about conviction and humble us, that you would turn our eyes towards Jesus and teach us to cling to the cross that you would take the dimness of our souls away. We know we are called to love you and to worship you, to delight in you. And so often our hearts are, are cold and distant. But Lord, we know that through the ministry of your spirit and with the truth of your word, you are able to change us, to awaken us, to stir up love and affection for Christ, to increase faith. You're able to humble us and sanctify us. So, Lord, make us open to the ministry of your Spirit this morning. I pray that if there is sin that needs to be repented of, that your Spirit would make that very clear in the hearts of those who listen. And if there is guilt and condemnation and shame, that your Spirit would turn our eyes and faith to the cross and that we would see Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who is the solution for the dimness of our hearts. So, Lord, empower me now and Give us open ears, open eyes, soft hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open this morning to Titus chapter 2, book of Titus. Since I have lived in Lawrence, which isn't really that long, we moved out here in 2014, but since I've lived here, there have been numerous churches that I'm aware of that have died, churches that have shut down, not just shutting down for COVID, but like, actually shut down, closing their doors, ceasing ministry, ceasing worship. And you might ask the question, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons, but I think one thing that is too often a common denominator is that these churches were all, in some way, unhealthy. There was something wrong. There was something wrong. And before we pat ourselves on the back, because there's a good-sized crowd in here this morning, we need to step back and soberly assess ourselves. Where are we as a church? Are we a healthy church spiritually? How would Jesus assess this congregation, this church? And if we believe that we are healthy, the question is, will we be a healthy church tomorrow, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Listen, our mission as a church, as we've said often, and those of you who are who have been around for a while have heard this, but our mission is that we want to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. That's why we exist. That's why we are here. Our goal is to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell them how they can be saved. And then we want to help them follow Jesus. We want to help each other become more and more like Jesus. And we want to do that not just today, And we want to not just reach people that are around us today, we want to do that decades into the future, if the Lord allows. We want this church to be reaching people that maybe don't even live here yet, maybe who aren't even born yet. And that means we need to be a healthy church, a healthy church that will last. In the opening chapter of Titus, the Apostle Paul lays out qualifications for elders, for pastors in the church And he gives quite a bit of attention to the behavior that should characterize a godly leader, that he's to be above reproach, that he's supposed to preach the true gospel, sound doctrine, and that his life, his conduct matters greatly. It's a big deal that the church has healthy leaders. It is essential. It's essential that their knowledge of the truth accords with godliness, that they not just know the truth and preach the truth, but that that truth has a transforming effect on their own lives. But in chapter 2, Paul switches gears, and now he starts addressing not just the conduct of leaders in the church, elders. Now he starts talking about church members, the people who are in the church. And if we are going to be a healthy church, Paul makes it clear it's not enough To just have the right men preaching the right doctrine and leading in the right way. Although that's indispensable. But we also need a church body. We need church members who are spiritually healthy. Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 will be our text this morning. You follow along as I read. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything, they're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We remember that Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter, he was a missionary. He was a church planter. He dedicated his life to following Jesus' command to go to all the nations and make disciples. Making disciples means preaching the gospel first and foremost, but then preaching the gospel, making disciples, it, it leads to a need to gather these disciples together, these believers need to belong to a community of faith called the church. So Paul had left Titus, his co-laborer, his apprentice, on the island of Crete to finish some work that they had started there, to put everything in order. We see that in chapter 1, verse 5. And Paul's mission is also our mission. If we're going to be a healthy church, we would benefit from listening carefully to the instructions he gives Titus. We need healthy leaders We also need healthy members. Paul's concern for healthy members in the church is expressed powerfully in this text. And we can sum up his primary concern this way, that we must faithfully pursue gospel transformation for the sake of our mission. That's the point this morning, that we as believers in the church must pursue gospel transformation for the sake of our mission. You see, our conduct matters for the mission. Paul tells us what this looks like and why it matters in the text. Let's look, number one, what this looks like. Paul says our conduct must be transformed by the gospel. Our conduct must be transformed by the gospel. If you look in verse 1, Paul contrasts Titus with the false teachers that he just got done talking about at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, he had denounced the content of their teaching That it was empty, it was unbiblical, it was contrary to the gospel. But he had also denounced their character. He had said that they profess to know God but deny him by their works. That they are detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. But then comes the contrast. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound means whole or healthy. That's where I'm getting this word healthy from. Titus, you're supposed to teach and to preach so that people's lives conform to the truth. And the truth is always connected to right living. If you look back in chapter one, there's this little phrase in the very first verse that really hints to us what uh, this drum that Paul's gonna be beating throughout the book. Paul calls himself a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Get this, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. He tells Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach people how to live godly lives. The doctrine Titus is supposed to teach has ethical implications. Implications for all people in every stage of life and in every station of society. The result of this preaching and teaching ministry that Titus was to have Was supposed to be a people whose conduct was not shaped by the norms of culture. Remember, we pointed out the problem with living on the island of Crete. Verse 12 of chapter 1 says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith. Paul wants Titus's preaching and teaching ministry. To result in a people whose lives are not shaped by the culture, but rather shaped by the truth of the gospel. What we believe is to affect our behavior. So Paul brings up six different types of people in the church. We'll just walk through those together. First, he gives instructions for older men. Instructions for older men. We find this in verse 2. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. You say, well, who are the older men? I think if we were to pull the room, you'd probably say, if I were to ask the guys, the older men are anybody that's older than me, right? Those are the old guys, but I probably don't fit in that category. But when we kind of look at this historically, Paul probably has in mind guys that are in their 50s and upward. So I'm not calling you old today. Don't be offended. Take it up with Paul, okay? Saying you're old. Um, But notice that Paul doesn't start with the young men. He doesn't start with the women, old or young. He starts with the old men. A healthy church, first and foremost, needs men. A healthy church needs men who are mature, men who are faithful, men who are solid. And Paul expects the older men in the church to be responsible to embrace this role, to embrace their role in the church. He describes how these older men are to live. He says, first of all, they're to be sober-minded, sober-minded. This has the idea of being serious about the things that really matter. Be serious about the things that matter. I think there's a temptation for older men to sort of check out to shift into neutral gear and sort of coast into the finish line. You might say, you know what, I've already done my part. I've fought my battles. I've made my contributions. I've done a lot of work in the church. You know, it's, it's the young guys' turn now. It's, it's their job to be engaged. I'm just sort of here. No, sober-minded has the idea of being alert and engaged, tuned in to what's going on. It requires a seriousness about things that matter. One preacher put it this way: not a sentimental old fool. or to be sober-minded if you're an older man, clear-headed and serious. You see, sound doctrine is supposed to affect your mindset. When you know the truth of God, when you understand what God's word says and teaches and you understand it, it gets a hold of you and it changes your mindset, your attitude, the way you carry yourself. There's a sobriety that comes with the knowledge of the truth. Older men are to be sober-minded. Secondly, they're to be dignified. Dignified. Older men are to show a measure of maturity that is worthy of respect. To be the kind of men that, that younger guys could look up to and aspire to be like. To be dignified means not crude, not coarse, not irresponsible. Older men are to be honorable. You might say, well, that's just not my personality to be dignified. But listen, when you've been impacted by the most noble and precious truths of God, you're going to come away different. God may actually change your personality. Are you okay with that? Are you ready for that? Do you embrace that? That perhaps the Holy Spirit wants to change you? We know that that's God's purpose in sanctification. Dignified. The third marker of these mature older men is that they are to be self Controlled, self controlled. It's hard to overemphasize this one. Self control is a mark of spiritual maturity. A man who does not have self control is not mature, period. Older men are to have a mastery over their flesh, not to be slaves to their appetites or to their emotions. Godly older men must be able to control their reactions, to control their attitudes, to control their words. This self-control is fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. Galatians 5 talks about that, that that the mark of being filled with the Spirit is that you're self-controlled. This issue of self-control is so important, he's going to repeat it in verse 5 for the young women and in verse 6 for the young men. So it's not just for the old, old guys in the room. Self-control is God's will for everyone. Proverbs chapter 25 tells us uh, about this, the importance of self-control. It's a matter of wisdom. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In, in ancient times, um, walls were essential for the security and the livelihood of the city. If you didn't have good walls, you were vulnerable, you were open to attack. Anybody and everybody would be able to come and take advantage of that community. And if the older men don't have self-control, that makes the church vulnerable. Proverbs 16.32 tells us, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Biblically speaking, we shouldn't be impressed by people who accomplish all sorts of things. Rather, we're supposed to be impressed by the person who's slow to anger and who rules his spirit, the man who has self-control. That's impressive. That's valuable. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians nine twenty four: do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The Apostle Paul understood the importance of self-control to a faithful and effective ministry. Listen to what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.5. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And listen to what Peter says. For if these qualities, including self-control, if these qualities are yours and are increasing They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, including self-control, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We could go on and on, but I hope you see the importance of self-control If self-control is yours and increasing, Peter says, it will keep you from being ineffective. It keeps you from being unfruitful. But if you lack it, he says you're nearsighted, you're blind, and you've forgotten the gospel. So older men are to be self-controlled. Paul goes on to describe these older men as needing to be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Again, sound means healthy, strong, whole, Their faith and their trust in God, Paul says, being sound in the faith, their trust in God has to be solid, no matter what happens. Listen, there's going to be hard things that happen to people, hard things that happen to families, hard things that happen to this church, and when that happens, we need older men who will stand up and say, we trust God. We've seen him be faithful before, and he will be faithful now, and you can trust him. We need our older men to lead the way, being sound in faith, no matter what adversity or disappointment comes. They're also to be sound in love, sound in love. Listen, older brothers, age is not an excuse to become grumpy or cranky or selfish or critical. You are to be sound in love, to be a model of that. Love is humble and patient. Love is kind and gracious. Love is sacrificial. And listen, we need older men who love like this. He says they're to be sound in faith, sound in love, but also sound in steadfastness. Steadfastness means that they endure. It means you don't quit. It means you hold on. It takes steadfastness to persevere in faith and love, doesn't it? Because it's not always easy. And the longer you endure, sometimes the harder it is because you've been in it the longest. You've been at this longer than some of us. And so endurance is all the more necessary. We need older men who don't take the path of least resistance, but keep pressing on all the way to the finish line. Men, if you're in this group that Paul is talking to this morning, let me assure you that your wives need husbands like this. Your kids, whether they're young or whether they're having kids of their own, your kids need a dad like this. Your grandkids need a grandpa like this. And our church needs members like this. This kind of conduct, this sort of lifestyle, this sort of maturity in the faith among older men, this isn't natural. This just doesn't come automatically. It's not easy. And it's not normal in our world. But this is what sound doctrine, taught from God's word, must produce. We need older men whose lives have been transformed by the gospel. This is God's will for you. We need healthy members if our mission of a church is going to succeed. And that means, men, that you have a responsibility to pursue this kind of gospel transformation. If this doesn't describe you, then Paul has just laid out the target for you. What you must aspire towards, what you must pray for, what you must seek God's help in. The old you needs to die and a new you needs to be formed by the power of Christ. Sound doctrine that's embraced and internalized is going to affect your conduct. And your conduct, men, matters for the mission. Secondly, Paul addresses the older women, I'm not going to say how old they are. I'm just going to leave you to decide if you, if you belong to this group. Instructions for older women in verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. We'll stop there. <clears throat> We pointed out in the instructions for church leadership that women are not called to serve as elders. They're not called to serve as pastors. But listen, that does not mean that women have no part to play in the life and ministry of the church. On the contrary, the church needs godly women. Godly women who who are not just personally following Christ, but godly women who are engaged in the life and ministry of the body. Paul shows us just how necessary such women are to the church. He says, just describing them, first of all, they are to be reverent. Reverent. It's interesting, this word for reverent is the same word that was used to describe a priest who's fulfilling his sacred duties in the temple. Think about that. Think about the mindset and the mentality of that priest who would have gone in to offer worship to the the Most High God. It's the way you carry yourself yourself. When you're totally aware that every action, every gesture, every duty you perform, women, is done in the presence of a holy God. And it's supposed to be done for the sake of his glory. The fear of the Lord is to be modeled by our older women. This is what sound doctrine produces, isn't it? I mean, if you've received good biblical teaching and believed it, then you've gotten a picture of who God actually is. You have a sense of his holiness, his glory, his transcendence, and that will change how you live. It will cause you to become a reverent woman. He says these older women are not only to be reverent, they're also not to be slanderers. They're not to be slanderers. We can make all sorts of jokes about how women on average, no know there's exceptions, but women on average speak more words than men you guys agree with that, roughly, approximately? Women usually speak a little bit more than men. And Proverbs tells us that where words are not lacking, um, that transgression or sin is, is not very rare. The more we speak, the more opportunity we have to sin with our words. James talks about the difficulty of controlling our tongue. And our speech does matter. And unfortunately, motherly concern which so many older women have, which is a good thing, that motherly concern can easily degrade into gossip and slander. When there's many words and there's much motherly concern, sometimes things get talked about that shouldn't be. The word for slander here that that Paul uses is the same word that's used as a title for Satan. 34 times in the New Testament, he is called the adversary or the slanderer. He's the accuser of the brethren. Here's what that means, ladies, is that saying things that you should not be saying about other people is a sin, and it's actually satanic. Think about that. It's not just a matter of good manners and and polite social relationships to not slander someone. This isn't just about being kind. It's about not being satanic. It's about not following the agenda of the devil who's a slanderer and an accuser. So Paul charges older women to reverently honor God and not to dishonor people that are made in God's image. He continues on, in addition, older women are not to be slaves to much wine. Typically, as alcohol levels rise, our discernment levels drop. And that's not just true for our speech, but in all areas of life. So Paul charges the older women not to indulge in excessive drinking. Our women must not turn to alcohol in order to escape from the pressures of life, from uh, sadness or grief, to escape from boredom, or to deal with anxiety, to relieve stress. There's a lot of reasons people drink. But Paul says older women are not to be slaves to much wine. Scripture warns us of the danger of alcohol. In Proverbs 20 verse 1, the, the, uh, Solomon writes that wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. It's foolish, it's foolish. Proverbs 23:29, he asks this rhetorical question, "Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Like one who lies on top of a mast. Describing somebody who's seasick and then climbs up to the top of a mast. You're dizzy, you're probably going to fall off. He says, you will say, they struck me, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. It's the numbness that drunkenness brings on. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. There's addiction at the end of it. Proverbs talks to us about the foolishness. Uh, of being, being slaves to alcohol. The New Testament flatly prohibits getting drunk. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It's very clear, very direct. To consume alcohol in moderation is not sin. But the apostle here clearly commands us never to be controlled by a substance. Rather, we're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit Rather than be intoxicated with some chemical, we're to be influenced and driven and affected by the Spirit of God. Now, this would have been very countercultural in that day and age. Remember what the Cretans were back in chapter 1, verse 12. They were gluttons. That's a word of excess. A glutton is someone who eats too much and drinks too much. So Paul's calling them to a countercultural kind of life. And listen, living this way is countercultural in our day as well. Some of us might watch a football game today. You know how many advertisements we'll see for alcohol? It's normal, it's accepted. And too often it's accepted in the church to be slaves to too much wine. The church needs women that are transformed by the gospel, not women who are slaves to the same vices as unbelievers. We're called to be different. And instead of these destructive behaviors, instead of slander, and instead of um, um, being a slave to wine, Paul now turns the corner and he says, listen, there's actually positive work that needs to be done. He calls older women to teach what is good and train the younger women. So slander is destructive. Being addicted to wine is destructive. But there's positive, constructive work that needs to be done. He says they are to teach What is good, and train the younger women. Now, I don't think Paul has in mind formal teaching in an organized setting. Um, Although that's great, we're thankful for women who are gifted to teach and serve, and we do ladies Bible studies, and we, you know, we'll do like a ladies retreat, and we'll, we'll do things like that. But I think Paul has something else in mind. This teaching occurs in the context of daily life. Teach the younger women day in, day out. This is more, I think, about getting coffee and less about making a PowerPoint presentation for a group of women. Our older women are to model the faith by their lives because your actions speak loudly. Your actions teach. But you're also to mentor the younger women in the faith and to teach them even with words. The health of the church depends, in part, on the faithfulness of its members to take responsibility for the people around them. Older women, you have a responsibility for the young women in the room to disciple them, to teach them, to train them. Older women, it's not enough for you to simply reach a level of maturity on your own. You might say, I'm following Jesus today and I think that these marks of maturity describe me, that's wonderful, but this maturity needs to be shared and passed on with those that are coming behind you. You are to be, in a sense, think about it this way, like personal trainers. You come alongside those who need help. You show them the ropes, show them the the practices and the disciplines and the workouts that they need to be doing so that they grow strong and mature in the faith. It's your relationships with younger women that will be the primary context in which this teaching takes place. It simply can't happen if you don't know younger women and if you don't ever rub shoulders with them, if you don't ever spend time with them. Now, this would be a burden if we were to select two or three women in this church and say, you guys must disciple all the young women in the church. That'd be too hard to do. There's just too much work to be done. But you know what happens if all of our older women are aspiring to be godly like this and then looking for opportunities to share that with one or two people? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So this isn't just a class it's not a program, it's not an event, although all those things are great and we do those from time to time. But Paul is saying there needs to be this relational dynamic within the body and there's no program or event or class that can compensate for a lack of relationships between the older women and the younger women in the church. So you might say, okay, the older women are to teach the younger women, well, what is it that is to be taught? Let's look at it. Teach the younger women, number one, to love their husbands and children. It's interesting, in the Greek text here, they're to be husband lovers and to be children lovers. It's a descriptive word that pairs together the word for love and the word for husband, and then again, the word for love and the word for children. So there's an emphasis here on love. And it's not just something that they are to do. This describes something that they are to be. Train the younger women to be the kind of women who love their husbands and who love their children. Now, admittedly, this is hard. It's hard to love husbands. It's sometimes hard to love children. That's why it has to be learned. That's why there needs to be training. If this was easy, you would just get it after hearing it one time. Uh, But this is something that takes time and it takes growth. And I think it's hard for two reasons. Number one, this is hard because love is hard. Love requires the sacrifice of self. And we all instinctively worship ourselves, don't we? We don't have to be taught to meet our own needs. We don't have to be taught to care about our own feelings. We don't have to be taught to, to look out for ourselves. That's very natural. But love is very unnatural. It's, it denies itself. It's sacrificial. That's difficult. But there's a second reason it's hard to love husbands and to love children. And that's because our culture isn't preaching this message. Our culture urges women to pursue their own identity, their own career, their own fulfillment at all costs, even at the cost of how it may affect their husband and their children. Our world demeans the responsibilities of a woman in the home. It doesn't place much value on that. You're just a mom. You're just a wife. You just stay at home. Maybe you've heard that kind of language. But listen, the gospel shatters all of that. The gospel tells us a story about the greatest glory in the world. True greatness, Jesus says, is to be a servant. And the greatest glory ever displayed happened on a cross 2,000 years ago where the Son of God laid down his own life in love for us. To love your husband, to love your children, to serve and to sacrifice, to pour out your life for them is glory. It's glory. Don't listen to what the world says when it minimizes the importance of these things and says that rather than serving your husband, you should serve some other man who owns your company. No, don't fall for that. The gospel shapes us as we embrace sound doctrine. We embrace a different way to measure importance and value and greatness. And we also embrace God's design for the home. We see it as not just technically correct. We see it as good. And we come to rejoice in it. This is what sound doctrine does. Older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and children. Then verse 5 to be self-controlled. We've talked about that already, so I won't go back into it. But everything we said about self-control is necessary for the younger women as well. He goes on, they are to also teach them to be pure, to be pure. Listen, purity is a challenge for fallen sinners, for everyone, for everyone. It's a huge problem in our society, and it's not just a problem for men. Purity is a challenge for women as well, and young women need to be trained They need to be trained to be pure in their thoughts, to be pure in their desires, to be pure in their communication with others, to be pure in what they engage their mind in, pure in what they feed their soul through entertainment on a screen or through reading or through conversation online. Listen, sound doctrine tells us that God is pure, that God is holy, and we are likewise to pursue holiness. Older women are to teach the younger women to pursue purity. They're also to teach them to be working at home, working at home. Now, what does this mean? This is something that causes no small amount of debate. Does this mean that it's wrong, that it's unbiblical for women to have a job outside the home? I don't think so. I don't think Paul's indicating that women cannot work outside the home as well. But rather, what Paul is saying here is that a woman's call, a wife and a mother, is to embrace her responsibilities in her home as the primary responsibilities. It means she's a worker first and foremost in her home, that she does not neglect those duties for any reason, whether that's because she has another job or because of some other reason. You know what keeps many women from being faithful to this instruction? From being workers at home? It's not necessarily employment outside the home that keeps them from that. Rather, it's social media, it's Netflix, it's you know pet hobbies and personal projects, things that are just more fun than fulfilling their responsibilities of caring for the home. Listen, it's easy to be at home, but not be working at home. And Paul says, this is an aspect of godliness that's important for our younger women to learn. And the older women are to teach them, to embrace these responsibilities. Paul's saying that these young women need to learn to be faithful and responsible in the sphere of ministry that God has given them in the home. And if they can do that, if they can accomplish that, if they can thrive, and they have margin to also do some work outside the home... Then go for it. I think Proverbs 31 talks about this godly, hard-working woman who's actually out in the market selling things she's made with her own hands, and she's doing that not to fill out the bottom line for some company. she's doing that to bless and provide for her home. And that scene is a good thing. That's industrious and hardworking. So I don't think this is incompatible with having a job, but listen. God is not going to accept the excuse that, well, I couldn't be hardworking at home because I had this other job. Listen, that may require some hard decisions. It may require living at maybe a little bit less of a level than some of us would prefer to live at. But there's no excuse biblically for neglecting our responsibilities as men or as women. And Paul says the older women are to train the younger women to be workers at home. And then another description of what they must teach these younger women to be. Kind. Kindness. Listen, working at home doesn't mean you're the dictator in the home. The fact that the woman is responsible to labor and to work hard and to sort of manage what's going on in the household, it doesn't mean that she is the five-star general who barks at everyone and and coerces them. No, there's to be a warm tenderness that flows from a good-natured heart. Kindness Kindness should be the dominating flavor in the home. Sound doctrine is supposed to affect us, right? This is living in accordance with sound doctrine. And sound doctrine tells us that God is kind, that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. We're told that God is gracious and merciful, that he is compassionate. So women, you are to likewise show kindness to others. Paul continues that the women are to teach the younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. That little word, their own, is important. Women are not to submit to men in general, but to the authorities that God has established in their life. God establishes their husbands as their authority. Then he, That's the authority in the home. He establishes pastors as the authority in the church. Then he establishes the government as the authority in society. And we are to be submissive to proper authority. And that means that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. This simple and straightforward command means exactly what it says it means. There's no like secret Greek word studies we can do that somehow mean being submissive to your husband means you don't have to be submissive to your husband. Some people try to do that. It's just really not convincing. Let's be honest with the text that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands husband. Sound doctrine. Remember, this is a life that fits with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine teaches us about the roles in the home. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul says, listen, this is just the way the world is. This is how God has made things to be. We're to live in accordance with it. In Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Your response to your husband is reflective of your attitude towards God himself. Older women are to teach this, meaning, older women, that you must understand it, that you must then believe it, and that you need to then finally model it so that you can effectively teach it and explain it and encourage others towards it. This starts at the top. If I could just be real candid with you, I think there's too, uh, too often it's just accepted in the church where we know that there's just some families where the wife wears the pants, where the tail wags the dog, and we sort of chuckle, we sort of laugh at it. We say, well, it is what it is. That's just how things work in that home or in our home. Listen, we shouldn't accept that. Let's not settle for that. Let's aspire towards and push towards God's best, towards his design for the way marriage and the home is supposed to work. Older women, we need you. We need you to show the goodness of God's word, the goodness of God's design for the next generation. The Bible tells us that both man and woman bear God's image. So both man and woman are are equal in that sense in worth and dignity. Both man and woman are one in Christ. Spiritually, there's a radical unity where Paul says there's no Jew or Greek, slave-free, male, female. We're all one in Christ. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. But God has made men and women different, and he has made us to fulfill different roles, and we are to embrace these roles in faith and with joy and obediently live it out. So that's instructions for the younger women through the older women. Then Paul turns to the younger men, verse 6. He says, likewise, urge the younger men, big surprise, to be self-controlled. Self-control, once again, bringing out the importance of this. Young men need to learn to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Listen, young men, self-control is something that affects every area of life. This is something you deal with in the area of how much you sleep. Some of you guys sleep too much. Some of you guys don't sleep enough. It's a matter of self-control, of discipline. This is a matter of how you handle your money. Are you disciplined? Do you have self-control with your spending? This is a matter of how you approach food. Do you eat too much? Do you eat the wrong things? Self-control matters. What about the way you manage your time? Are you always late? Like always late? This is a matter of self-control. That's an area God wants you to grow. It's obviously a matter of sexual purity. What you do with your eyes, what takes place in your mind, how you engage with women who are made in the image of God, whether it's a girlfriend or whatever it may be. We could talk about work ethic. Young men, are you self-controlled? Do you work hard? Do you have to always be told what to do? Do you have to always be motivated by somebody else? Or do you have a godly drive to be responsible and do what you're supposed to do? Self-control touches every area of life. We could go on and on. Paul says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Listen, young guys, if you can figure this one out, everything else is kind of downstream from here. This is the primary challenge. This is the primary challenge. As you mature and grow in this area, as you're self-controlled with your time, with your money, and how you work, with your desires, it's gonna radically affect your life. It's gonna radically change you. And it will allow you to become the kind of man who's mature and godly and contributing to the ministry of the church. Paul talks to Titus as well in verses 7 and 8. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Titus is supposed to be a good example. To handle himself in such a way that no credible charge can be brought against him that would undermine the message that he's preaching. So Titus is supposed to preach to all these different groups, to the old men, to the young men, the older women, the younger women. And and Paul says, and Titus, and and you need to set a good example. Make sure that your life fits your message. Practice what you preach. And then he addresses one final group in verse 9: bondservants. These are slaves. He says that they are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Once again, this is radically countercultural. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And if anybody had an excuse to lie, to steal, to stick it to the man and sort of help themselves out, it would be slaves, right? You would think they would have an excuse. Paul tells these believing slaves that their lives need to reflect the fact that they seek to honor God in their work. This is what it looks like to live a life that's being transformed by the gospel. This is life that is in step with the truth of God's word. So that's what it looks like. But a second point this morning, not only is our conduct to be transformed by the gospel. But our conduct is to give testimony to the gospel. Paul tells us why it matters that we live this way. It matters because the world is watching. The world is watching. Three times Paul underscores why this behavior matters. Look in verse five. First, he says that the word of God may not be reviled. This is the purpose. This is the goal, the reason behind all of this teaching, all of this explanation. He says we're called to live this way. Why? So that the word of God may not be reviled. Listen, our conduct is to give testimony to the gospel. Listen, this is important. You can have the best arguments. You can have the clearest explanations. You can have the right message as a Christian. But if your life discredits the message, if it's out of step with God's word, then it cuts the legs out from underneath our gospel witness to the world if we're unchanged by the truths that we claim to believe, then you know what's going to happen? The word of God is going to be reviled. And it's going to be partially our fault. Listen, your conduct affects the credibility of the gospel. Many people hate God's truth, but we must never give them a justifiable reason for rejecting it because of our hypocrisy. Listen, this isn't just good advice. All of this explanation of how we are to live isn't advice. This is essential. Your conduct, believer, it matters for the mission. In verse 8, he gives us, again, a repetition. Not only so that the word of God isn't reviled, but so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Listen, there's going to be people who oppose the gospel. I would imagine that there were some on the island of Crete some evil beasts, some lazy gluttons and liars, who probably didn't want to be rebuked. They didn't want to be challenged. They didn't want to be confronted with the truth of Scripture. So they would become opponents of the message of Christ. Listen, if some in the church were guilty of the same sins as their neighbors, their opponents would have a field day. Much like elders are to be above reproach, Paul also wants to make sure that there's no charges against the members of the church that can stick. So, Paul's like just sprinkling all of these reasons throughout this text that the word of God may not be reviled, in verse 5, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us, verse 8. And then look in verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Listen, we don't want the word to be reviled. We don't want the messengers of the gospel to be written off. Those are both negative things. But now Paul gives a positive hope, a positive hope here, that you, Christian, by your faithful life, you can actually make the gospel look good. You can. Your life is to adorn the doctrine of God. It's actually possible when our lives are brought into harmony with the truth we believe to live the kind of life that god uses to live the light, a kind of life that, that god will use to draw unbelievers to christ the kind of life that can draw sinners to repentance that can draw the lost into the light second corinthians chapter 2 verse 15 paul writes that we are the aroma of christ to god among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Your life is to be an aroma of Christ to God. And there's going to be people who recognize that. Some will embrace it and accept it as, as the smell of life. It will draw them in. There's others that will reject it and hate it. But listen, even when people scoff, Even when people reject, even when people refuse the gospel, consider that a life lived to God, a life that's lived according to his word, it honors and pleases God. And that's actually enough. That's enough for us. Like Romans 12, one says, we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. That's how we worship him. So realize this, your life and what you do with it matters. It matters for the kingdom of God doing these good works, being a godly uh, older man, a godly older woman or a young woman or a young man, it's not ultimately about you. It's not. This is about spreading the gospel. We've been given a crucial mission by Jesus Christ to go and make disciples, and how we live directly impacts that mission. We must be faithful to pursue gospel transformation for the sake of this mission, Our conduct needs to be demonstrating that the truth can really change you, and our conduct needs to give testimony to the gospel, pointing out that it is indeed true. So let me ask you, are you adorning the doctrine of God with your life? What does your life say about the truth of the gospel? What's your involvement in the church? Who are you impacting, pouring into? Does this list of virtues describe you, or do you see yourself in the list of vices that are pointed out here in Titus chapter 2? Listen, if you have been convicted this morning, as I'm going through this list, and you're saying, man, there's a lot that needs to change. What you need this morning is grace, and this is the next sermon's passage, but I can't help but read it. I'll read it with very little comment. Look down with me in verse 11. We are to pursue gospel transformation, to be these kind of people who do these things for the sake of the mission. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, it's the grace of God that grants forgiveness for sinners. Some of you need to confess this morning that you are not self-controlled. Maybe you're not submissive to your husband. That you're not dignified or sober-minded, whatever it may be. Come to Christ and receive the grace that he offers. Doing all of these good works, living this kind of a life, this isn't like the gate through which you get into the kingdom of God. No, that's the gospel. That's the cross of Jesus. What Paul is describing here is this is the expected way of living that happens inside the gate. As those who belong, this is how we're supposed to behave. And the amazing thing is is that the same grace that brings us salvation in verse 11... In verse 12, it trains us. It changes us. You can change, and you must. May we be a church that is full of spiritually healthy members. (coughs) That's my prayer for us. We need to have the right leaders, but we need a church that is mature, faithful, healthy, godly. May God accomplish his mission through us for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us this morning as we've just looked into your word and seen what it is that a knowledge of the truth is supposed to produce in us. Lord, may we aspire to live a godly life so that the word of God will not be reviled in Lawrence, Kansas. So that no opponents in Douglas County will have anything to say about us that can stick. So that in everything we do, whether it's in the church, in our home, in our places of employment, no matter where we happen to be, so that everything we do would adorn the doctrine of God, that we would give testimony to the truth and beauty and power of the gospel, that we've been changed by it, and that Jesus Christ is our Lord, He's our King, and we need to live a life that is submitted to Him. Lord, for those who feel conviction this morning, I pray that they would confess their sin to you and that they would turn away from that sin, that they would lay it down at the foot of the cross and forsake it, that they would yield themselves to the power of your spirit to change them from the inside out. Lord, for those who may be personally growing in Christ but have felt the pull this morning to engage in the ministry within the church, I pray that you would give them wisdom, open up doors, give them opportunities to talk to younger folks. And Lord, for those who may be older, but have sadly not yet reached the kind of maturity that can be shared, I pray that they would have a laser focus on Jesus Christ, that they would lay aside every sin and weight that is holding them back, that they would run the race with patience and endurance and look look to Christ. I pray that you would grow them and mature them and change them. It's not too late. It's not too late. Lord, we pray that this church would be a pure church, a godly church, a church that's faithful and useful for your kingdom. We pray that you would use us to advance the gospel in this community. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.